everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. I am so honored to have on the show today Nancy Piercy, who is one of my all-time favorite authors. Today we're going to be talking about her brand new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. This is an absolute must-read, and I'm going to share things that I loved about the book throughout this interview, so you'll see why you need to get this too. If you don't already know about Professor Piercy, she is a best-selling author and speaker. She's a former agnostic and was hailed in The Economist as a America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. She is currently a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. Her books have been translated into 18 languages and include Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Love Thy Body. In her new book, Professor Piercy explains how secularism has villainized the concept of masculinity. In other words, in case you haven't noticed, society is pretty down on men today, to put it lightly. In fact, one media researcher analyzed more than 2,000 mass media portrayals of men, including things like news and feature articles, talk shows, and so on. And they found that more than 75% of all media representations of men portrayed them as, quote, villains, aggressors, perverts, and philanderers. So the question is, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where men are seen so negatively that they're literally considered by many to be toxic? And what does the Bible say about what it means to be a man? That's what we're going to dig into today. Well, welcome to the show, Nancy. Thanks so much, Natasha. I appreciate it. I love, love your book, and I I power read it over just two days because I couldn't put it down, and so I'm really excited to talk about it. One of the reasons that I loved it is because I learned so much from the book. This is not a subject that I had really thought a lot about. It's not something I had studied much, and yet by the time I got to the end, I realized just how important this subject is. So that's what I'm really hoping that listeners will get from this episode is just an idea of this really matters and to give them a little bit of a taste of what's in there. And I hope everybody will go and get the book. So just to start kind of from the beginning, part one of the book is called The Good News About Christian Men. And you spend a lot of time there outlining what the Bible says about men and gender roles and dispel a lot of popular myths that people have about those things as well. And for Christians, this is obviously a really important context for the rest of the book, because if we're going to talk about how culture is getting masculinity wrong, we have to be clear on how to get it right based on what the Bible teaches. So can you just start by talking us through some of those key points of what the Bible says on those things through the lens of creation, fall, and redemption, as you outline it in the book? Right. The creation, fall, redemption is kind of the the template that you can use to work out a Christian view of any subject. It's wonderfully useful because you say, okay, how did God originally create it? What was its original created purpose? We need to be clear about what is its original purpose? What was God trying to do in setting up creation the way he did? The second step is how has it been distorted and destroyed by the fall? How has it been marred by sin, by false worldviews, and so on? We need to be clear about the situation that we're living in today. You know, what are the specific sins and false ideas in our own day? And then thirdly, how can we be partners with God in bringing it back to its original created order? In other words, you know, salvation is not just salvation from sin. It's salvation to pick up again the original purpose for which God created us. And so I do spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about Genesis. What was God's first job description to the human race? 
and it's sometimes called the cultural mandate. About half my students have never heard that term, so I need to explain it. What, it, what it's saying is that in the beginning, God creates the universe, the physical universe, the animals, the plants, and so on, and then he finally creates the first human couple. And what's the first thing he says to them? He tells them why he made them. What's your purpose? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And because the language of Genesis is so streamlined, you can unpack many layers of meaning from that. So be fruitful and multiply is not just have families, but historically all of the social institutions grow out of the family. You know, the family becomes an extended family, becomes a clan, becomes a tribe, a village, a nation, and so on. And there are also social institutions formed for certain purposes. Uh, the village needs a school, a church, a state. And so Be Fruitful starts with not just the family, but all of the social institutions and the laws and treaties and constitutions that govern them. So it's a very rich understanding of what it means to build up the entire social world. Subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So, of course, it starts in most cultures with agriculture, but mining and technology and invent computers and compose music. And one of my students said, oh, come on, compose music? And I said, well, I play the violin. So what is the violin made out of? Wood. What's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all of the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the natural resources of the physical world. And so we often lose sight of this, that God's original purpose for us was to build cultures, build civilizations, make history. And that's what we're redeemed to. We focus on, an awful lot on being redeemed from sin, but often we don't focus on, yes, but to do what? So you go back to before the fall, where God says our original purpose was to create cultures. And this ends up being important later in the book when we talk about secular worldviews because a lot of secular um, thinkers say, well, the way to really recover your true manhood, you know, is to escape, to go off into the wilderness and, you know, climb mountains and, and hunt for elk and go whitewater rafting. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But is it the way you measure your masculinity? I say no. Go back to the cultural mandate. You be, your masculinity is most affirmed and fulfilled when you roll up your sleeves and dig deeply into your social relationships and into useful, creative, productive work. And when it comes to marriage specifically, Christianity often gets a bad rap from secular culture that thinks the biblical teachings are archaic and toxic. And most people don't realize just how revolutionary Christian marriage was relative to pagan society at the time in which it emerged. So I think your section on the Greco-Roman culture is a really helpful starting point for putting the nature of Christian marriage into a better context. Talk a bit about what family life and marriage were like by the time that we get to this pagan culture of the time versus Christian marriage. Yes, in the early church, its view of marriage was revolutionary. It was so contrary to the Roman world at the time. Roman culture focused on the adult male, and everyone else had value only in relation to the adult male. So men were totally, uh, they, they were totally ex expected that they would have sex with just about anyone. In other words, men would have sex with prostitutes and mistresses and courtesans, and most of all with their slaves. The slaves couldn't say no. 
And so they had sex with male and female slaves, adults and children. So this was the world that the gospel was born into. Wives had very little value. They were usually married at a young age, often 12 years old, and they were not really seen then as objects of love and compassion and friendship and companionship. No, they were seen as inferiors because they were so much younger than their husbands. They did have less status, less education, they were less mature. And so they were treated as just the avenues for having legal heirs. That was about it. And so um, I have a, one historian that I quote who says, um, look, at, look at what the Bible says about teaching, uh, treating women as fellow heirs of the grace of life. She says, that was not really sort of the, the, the masculine view. In the Roman culture, you know, the Roman culture was you be tough, you be strong. And I, I, I think you probably know this, but um, men even had right of life and death over their family, their children and their wives. It was perfectly legal for a husband to kill his wife, especially if he caught her in adultery. If, he, if she caught him, Cato says this, you know, we think of these great statesmen back then, but they often had a dark side. Even Cato, who was often um, held up as a great statesman, said, hey, you know, men can commit adultery and his wife cannot lay a finger on him. If that's how he put it. But if you catch your wife committing adultery, you can kill her. That's what the law says. So you can see why Christianity was very revolutionary when it said, first of all, no, men do not have sex with anyone they want. Men, 1 Corinthians 7, men are held to the same moral convictions, the same moral commands as women, the same moral standards as women. So the, the Bible's commands to women were not all that different from the surrounding culture. You know, fidelity in marriage, chastity before marriage, but that was very different for men. And so men had a hard time with Christianity. You find people like Augustine still in the fourth century explaining to Christian men why they should not have sex with their slaves. So it took a while for the Christian ethic to take root. And it, we need to understand how revolutionary it was so that we appreciate it more today. Yeah, it's amazing how much we take for granted today about the nature of marriage and what's kind of expected <laughs> in, a, in a good marriage, even, you know, even amongst secular people. And they don't realize how different Christian marriage was that led to the views that we have today versus what you know, people originally had, as you just described. So I thought that was really, really interesting. But still, there are a lot of people who are skeptical of Christianity today who would say, well, okay, fine, that's great and all, but you're leaving out the toxic patriarchal parts of how the Bible says men and women should function in a marriage, how men are supposed to, quote unquote, rule the house. And I think you did a great job of painting a picture of what headship in the home really means in the Bible and for Christians. So how would you respond to someone convinced that the Bible still teaches a toxic relationship? Relationship of man over wife in the family. Well, what I do in this book is actually somewhat different. Um, I do dis discuss the Bible verses, but more than that, I look at sociological and psychological studies of what Christian men actually do. Uh, you might say this is kind of the show, not tell version, as, as English teachers like to put it. So I looked at sociological, psychological studies where I was, I personally was blown away. I had no idea that Christian men would test out as being so loving, respectful, kind, that they would interpret 
headship as in Ephesians. Well, the way Ephesians says to, which is, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. In fact, that was the verse that was quoted the most often by evangelicals when they were asked, you know, what do you think it means to have some kind of headship in the home? Um, and uh, the vast majority of times they would unpack that by saying, it means to be the spiritual leader. They didn't usually say things like breadwinner or final authority or tiebreaker or so many of the things we think of. They said spiritual leader. And then when they were asked to unpack that, they would start with the practical things like let's make sure the family gets to church on Sunday. Let's make sure the family gets to, you know, your, your kids get to youth group. Make sure you have a Bible study. Make sure you lead family devotions. So it started with those practical things, but it also was more abstract things like, you know, you're responsible for the spiritual health of your wife and children. You're responsible for their growth. And I was stunned when I read these things. I just didn't, because I'd, I'd read the same media narratives that you have, right? And so I was under the impression that, that they would test out much more strongly on, I'm in charge and I have authority, and they just didn't. And again, these are based on, I, I have maybe, maybe a dozen different studies all coming up with the same thing. And so this is, this is what, you know, regardless what the leaders of theologians say, I thought it was really wonderful to find out how ordinary Christian men and women define headship in the home in a very much of a servant leadership kind of definition. It's so interesting to see that contrast because it just shows that a lot of secularists, non-believers who look at what the Bible says and they kind of cut out those passages with a razor sharp point and they say, oh, this is what this must mean. They're putting their own meaning into it without looking and seeing the bigger context, first of all, of what the Bible teaches. And then second of all, how that plays out in Christians' lives. So it's fascinating to read that sociological data. It, more on that that I thought was really interesting was when you talked about the divorce rates in, amongst Christians, because we've all heard these statistics that Christians divorce at the same or even higher rates than the general public, which seems to mean that we have exactly the same problems that everyone else has. But you show something different there. And for listeners of this podcast, people who listen regularly, you know that I always talk about this gap between the fact that there are 65% of people in America who identify as Christians, but only about 6%, according to Arizona uh, Christian University's Cultural Research Center, who have a biblical role view, meaning that they have the beliefs and behaviors that predominantly line up with what the Bible teaches. And so when we talk about that gap, one of the things that I'm always talking about on this show is that that's going to have so many implications for us as Christians. And one of those big implications is that anytime you are doing a study of quote unquote Christians, you're just lumping together millions of people who have some very different beliefs because people can put any label on themselves that they want. And so I was very fascinated to see that play out in your book on this divorce research research and how you can split that out amongst nominal and committed Christians. So with all that background in mind, what did you find? What did you find about the divorce rates in Christians? Yes, that's the first pushback I always get when I talk to people about these statistics. They always say, but haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of society? In fact, in my research, I found out that is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. So the researchers went back to the data and they separated out the evangelical men who are truly committed, who do attend church regularly, who, are, who follow their convictions from merely nominal Christians. 
and my students don't even know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain to them. It means in name only. So N-O-M is Latin for name. And these men test are shockingly different. They do fit all the toxic stereotypes. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness in their marriage. These men are the least engaged with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce of any group in America, higher than secular men. And they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. And so this is why the statistics, the, the, the numbers get skewed because if you just do an overarching study of evangelicals, you're going to get men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. And so, of course, the numbers are going to be skewed and misleading. And I have had people ask me, well, why would they be even worse than secular men? If, they, if they're at least hanging around the fringes of the Christian world. And the answer seems to be that they take words like headship, they infuse it with secular meaning, you know, from the secular script for masculinity, concepts of entitlement and dominance and control. But then they baptize it with Christian language. And so they end up feeling justified, you know, that their religion justifies them in being that way. And they end up being even worse than secular men. So this is what we're up against in terms of trying to understand, you know, how, how do we deal with men in our, in our churches, for example? How can we be supportive of Christian men who are doing a good job? Because they also feel demeaned and demoralized in our culture today. When I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one of the male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. <laughs> so, they, so they, you know, Christian men often feel that way. They feel they have to drop their masculinity at the door of the church. Um, I, there's a Wall Street Journal psychotherapist. She writes for them regularly, and she said, the young men coming into my practice are very demoralized because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. 46% of American men in a recent survey said, these days, society seems to punish men just for acting like men. 46%. Now, that's almost half. So whether you agree or not, that's a lot of men who do feel disenfranchised today as if masculinity is not valued. So this is where, where we have to, on the one hand, explode the negative stereotypes, on the one hand, but also I think we need better strategies for reaching out to these nominal Christian men and say, you know, how can the church maybe educate them better on a biblical meaning of these terms? Well, there are a lot of people that need to be educated on a lot of biblical things, right? <laughs> as we know from looking at that data between the 65% who identify as Christians and 6% with the biblical worldview, this is just one manifestation of that, right? It, it, it's it's so helpful to hear the good news, the, the good side of these statistics, because I think that there are quite a few evangelical leaders who are a bit self-loathing and, you know, they write articles that come out in popular media and they, they focus on all the negative things that you hear. And there are certainly things that we need to talk about that are negative. I don't want to shy away from those, but there's a lot of positive also. And so I'm really glad that you highlighted that in your book. So that's kind of the starting place of your book is to look at the good news about Christian men. And then you kind of take us on a journey through history to say, well, how did we get here where this is how men are seen today? And so I want to kind of go through some of the key steps in that history. I love history. So I just, I, I 
thoroughly enjoyed reading this section and you trace a fascinating history through the colonial period up until the present time of how societal changes led to vast differences and how both men and women are perceived in society. So let's start back in that colonial period and summarize what family life was kind of like at that time. How especially was the man's role very different than what we would think of today because of how families were structured and the way of life that people had at the time? Yes, and the reason I feel we need to understand the history, um, because some of some of my readers say, why should I understand history? Um, ah. They're not like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I do try to persuade people that they will understand these issues better if they know where it started, where it came from, how it developed. You cannot stand against a social trend unless you know where it came from. And I find a lot of people think that the language of toxic masculinity started with maybe the 1960s with right. second wave feminism. And it started much, much earlier. And so that's why I go all the way back to the colonial era. The, the turning point was the Industrial Revolution. So what was it like before the Industrial Revolution? Well, in the colonial era, men worked side by side with their children and their wives all day. You know, they were teaching the children adult skills. And of course, they had to be gentle and patient with them. And so the ethos, the cultural expectation of men back then focused very much on a caretaking role, on their responsibility for the good of the family. In fact, the, even the concept of authority had a very specific meaning back then. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people today don't have a very positive view of authority. But back then, people used authority to mean who's responsible for the common good. So in a relationship, I look out for what's good for me, you look out for what's good for you, but who looks out for the good of the relationship, the marriage, the family, the church, civil society? The position of authority was somebody who was supposed to be disinterested. That was the favorite word of the time. Disinterested means he was not supposed to pursue his own private interests. He was supposed to pursue the interest of the whole. And so I talk to people today and they say, well, if people had that view of authority, <laughs> that wouldn't be so bad. So that's the view they had. That, uh, and fathers were not called only to be fathers of the families, but fathers of the community. That was a common phrase as well. And even a secular historian said the definition of manhood in the colonial era was duty to God and man. That's how he puts it. Mm -hmm. Duty to God and man. So obviously that was also a very Christian understanding because many people in the founding of our nation were, were Christian. How did we lose that? The Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And so for the first time in American history, men were no longer working with people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition, in competition with other men. And already in the literature of the day, you can see people start to lament that men were losing that caretaking ethos that they had had in the colonial era, that they were becoming egocentric and ambitious and greedy and acquisitive and look out for number one and get ahead, you know, make it financially. These are some of the words I'm, I'm repeating actually from the language of the day. And people began to be very concerned that men were changing. And this was the first time you began to see negative characteriz characterizations of men. And of course, this was when society was also secularizing. 
as factories and industries developed, they began to be a very large public realm. Uh, financial institutions, uni universities, and of course the state grew larger, and people began to say that this public arena should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free. In other words, don't bring your personal, private values into the public realm, which is what we hear today as well. And so men were the ones who were getting that secular education, working in that secularized field. And as a result, they began attending church less often. They began to be less committed to a biblical ethic. And again, you can see it in the language of the day. There's one very well-known writer at the time who said, you know, our men are developing two consciences, you know, one for the workplace and one for home. In other words, the sacred secular split, as we would call it today. You know, they would, they would live by the secular um, standards when they were at work. And then at home in church, they would try to kind of reconnect <laughs> to a more biblical worldview. And so this is, this is really the beginning of uh, a more secularized understanding of masculinity. And, and already people were describing it in terms that we would now call toxic. That men were losing that biblical caretaking ethos of you know, loving responsibility and so on, becoming individualistic, self-motivated, self, not, mo not so much self-motivated because that's a good thing, but you know, <laughs> pushing themselves forward, right. you know, as, as in, a, in a competitive way. So that's when it starts. We have to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. It was really interesting reading about that change in the views of masculinity alongside how the roles of women started to be perceived differently. So even though you're focused on talking about masculinity in the book, you also address the fact that people started to see women differently because of how they were seen with respect to men being out of the house. Now women are seen as kind of just being the ruler of the house in a sense. So talk to us a little bit about that. How did society's views of women also change during that time? Yes, yeah, so if the public realm was going to be value-free, where would you cultivate values? In the private realm. People desperately wanted to keep values, love, altruism, goodness, kindness, relationships, and religious devotion. So those were to be cultivated in the private realm, and of course women were still in the private realm. And so in a sense, women were said to be the moral guardians of society. And I just want you to know this was completely new. Never before in human history had women been seen as morally superior to men. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it was thought that men were morally superior. It was thought that the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight, and men were thought to be more rational, and therefore men were thought to be more virtuous. In fact, the word virtue comes from the Latin word for man. V-I-R means man, as in virile. And so it was completely new in the 19th century when people began to say, well, women are now the morally superior sex, and when men come home, they've been socialized all day in the secular workplace, uh, in the dog-eat-dog, you know, tough, rough and tumble of the workplace. They come home at night and they need to be reformed and refined and renewed by their morally and spiritually superior wives. 
And so, as you can imagine, this led to a double standard that is still around today. Um, when I talk to teenagers and young adults, they tell me it's very much still the case, like in, in dating, for example, that it's the woman who's seen as the one responsible for holding the line and for making sure that the relationship doesn't go too far physically, for example. And so this is when that started. And you can also kind of understand what, where uh, feminism came from, because that was when women began to say, we're tired of being the ones to tame men. You know, that was, right. that was the language actually used, that women tame men, that women civilize men. And eventually this was not fun for men, because they were always being painted as a villain. And it wasn't fun for women, because who wants to be someone else's conscience? <laughs> so you can see a lot of the tension between the sexes goes all the way back to this period. And we will understand it better when we see it in that historical context. You give a really interesting kind of case study of what was going on during that transition in terms of how it was difficult even for women to think of these changes. And I had never heard this before reading your book, but you pointed out that women actually did not want to be given the right to vote necessarily during the time of this societal shift, but maybe not for the reasons that people might think when they hear that. So can you explain why that was and how that reflected this changing view of the family? I'm glad you said it's not the reasons we might think, because when we read to normal history books, they present it as men were denying women the vote, men were holding them down, men were subjugating them. But if you read the, read the early uh, suffragists, they said it's actually women who are opposed to the vote. I have quotes from them. I had readers who didn't believe that. So I found the quotes <laughs> from <laughs> Susan B. Anthony and others who said, you know, the biggest barrier, the biggest obstacle to giving women the vote is women. And why were women opposed, so many women opposed to the vote at first? They did not argue in terms of the male vote versus the female vote, you know, men's vote versus women's vote. What they argued was the household vote versus the individual vote. And many women wanted to keep a household vote because that was a societal way of saying the head of the house has responsibility to take into account the interests of everyone in the household. That's what it meant. You know, you didn't just vote for yourself. You voted for everybody that you were financially responsible for, which, by the way, was not just nuclear family. Often it was extended family and servants and household help and so on. So it's quite a rich environment. And they understood, the early anti-suffragists understood that if the individual votes, that's kind of letting men off the hook. Because what it's saying is, men, you can just vote as an, as an individual. We're no longer holding you accountable for the interest of the whole household. And that is what happened, in fact. Uh, it's, the reason women got the vote eventually is it started with universal male suffrage. In other words, before that, you had to be a landowner to vote. You had to actually own land and a household and a family industry, you know, probably a large farm. You had to be in, in charge of a large financial institution, in a sense, uh, economic, economically productive unit, the family farm, the family business. And the assumption being that, therefore, that you would have some experience and maturity in running things. And so you had the vote. And then you were responsible for, as I said, for that. They called it the small commonwealth. You know, the family was not just, you know, two parents and some kids. It was the whole commonwealth involved in the family industry. The first change was when the vote was made universally to all men. In other words, men who didn't have a commonwealth that they were responsible for. Men who didn't 
own anything. Men who could be, you know, drunk or falling down in the gutter over here, you know. And women looked at that and said, whoa, wait a minute. You're, you're basically making the vote. You're changing the meaning of the vote. It now means the individual. And if the vote is going to mean the individual, then we'd better have it too. You know, and the, the most poignant sentence in that whole chapter is uh, a, a female leader of the trade movement, trade union movement, said women need the vote because we can no longer trust men, even good men, to look out for our, our interests. And I thought that was the saddest thing because it, what it means is it, it wasn't because, oh, you know, we want, we want to give women a vote. It was you know, that they should have a voice too. And they have something valuable to offer. No, it was we can't trust men anymore. Men, you know, society has let men off the hook. Now the vote means me and the state. There's no intervening, you know, social organization between the individual and the state. It's every individual for himself, autonomous, independent, you know, face to face with the power of the state. So it, it was a huge shift in political philosophy from a more organic understanding of the family and the household to a very individualistic understanding. And like I said, logically, women said, well, if the vote now means individual, then we have to look out for our, our interests as well. So that was, it was a very important stage, but you have to explain it carefully because when I talk to my students about it, they often say, what, wait, <laughs> of course I want the vote. So I have to explain what it meant something very different back then. It was actually a way in which a more toxic view of masculinity arose because it said, oh, men, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be responsible for your family or for, for a whole household. You just, you know, speak for yourself. So that was a very huge change. That's so, that's so fascinating. And it's so foreign to us today, right? Because like you're saying, we look back at that and we say, well, why didn't women get to vote? That seems horrible, but we don't think of how that reflects the political philosophy of the time, like you're saying. This is why history matters for all the people who don't like history. History is so important, right, for that context. And as you're saying that, it makes me think of something that I love doing just in the free time that I have when I do have it as genealogy, going back and researching family history records. And it's interesting because from 1790, that was the first census and they came out every 10 years from 1790 to 1840 all you get in a census record is a list of the heads of the families everyone else just gets enumerated by account so there were four females in this house and two males for example uh, but that changes in 1850 and you start to get a list of every single individual from that point on so I think that that probably reflects some of the similar changes that you're talking about so it's interesting to hear how all these things manifest themselves and yet we don't think about it until somebody like you comes along and points it out in a book so I, I love that history Something else that was interesting in that change, so we've talked about the men, we've talked about the women, but also you talked about how things change for the boys. So what happens to boys when they are now in a family where the men are not home all day, now they're out working in a factory somewhere, they're being raised primarily by the mom, that's with whom they're spending the most of their time. How does that change boyhood? Oh yeah, it changes it dramatically. For the first time in American history, boys are growing up with very, a lot of unsupervised time because their, fa their fathers are out of the home. And what supervision they do get, what rules they do get are from their mothers. Well, they can see very well that the mother's life is quite different from their father's life. And so asking them to live up to their mother's rules and standards seems to be asking them to be effeminate, you know, to not, not to be girly, to not be masculine. And so for the first time, boys begin to be portrayed as unruly, wild, rule-breaking, boys will be boys. You know, nobody said that before. Remember I said that 
men were thought to be morally superior. And so nobody thought that boys were particularly misbehaving, and, you know, particularly prone to be wild and rambunctious and, until this time, until they began to be raised without their fathers. In fact, one of my favorite quotes was from a leading psychologist at the time. And he said, never in American history has the boy been so wild and so half orphaned, half orphaned. You know, if you're used to having the father in the home and he's suddenly gone, it looks like he's half an orphan. That's the language they used at the time. And so even, even the literature for boys changed. Up until then, uh, the literature for children was very didactic, moralistic, you know, portraying the good boy and to give boys a model. And now for the first time, a new genre arises that was actually called bad boy books. The first one was titled The Story of a Bad Boy. <laughs> and so it's the first time that a misbehaving child was the protagonist. And the best known, of course, are Mark, uh, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And he was intentionally writing in order to mock, to parody the earlier moralistic books. So as these young boys then grew up, what happened to American society? As they came into uh, adulthood and they brought with them the notion that, you know, to be a real man is to break the rules, is to be wild, is to be rowdy, crime increased dramatically. In the 19th century, crime and drinking and gambling and prostitution all rose dramatically. Sometimes a single fact can help. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So there's a reason there was a temperance movement. In fact, there were a, a huge number of reform movements in the 19th century precisely because male behavior was growing worse, especially boys who were coming in from the countryside to find work in the city and they were separated from traditional structures of authority like family, church, village, neighborhood. And they were coming into, into the city and they were even more uh, prone to fall prey to the vices of the city. So a lot, again, another stage in the secularization of the masculine script was the 19th century as these boys in essentially grew up and brought that bad boy culture with them. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because if all of that was not enough, which that was a lot of change, on top of that, piling onto it, you have the emergence of Darwin's theory of evolution. So all of a sudden you have these sociological factors that are happening independently of that, but then Darwin comes along and just has this drastic effect on all of society in every realm that you can think of over time. And you talk about this in the book, that this was a time where it kind of normalized a lot of the traits that men today are being labeled as having that are toxic. So some of those things that were already coming about from the historical changes that we've just discussed, it gets added onto with Darwin. So talk a little bit about that. How did that come about? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because I go through various stages in my book on you know the secularization of the masculine script, and I think this was one of the most important stages is the rise of Darwinism. Because until then, you know these these reform movements were trying to say, "Hey, men, shape up." Darwin comes along and says, "Hey, no, this is just this is what right. the normative male culture is." So the Darwinian thinkers began to argue that. In the struggle for survival, the men who came out on top would be the men who were rough, ruthless, predatory, brutal, savage, barbarian. These were the adjectives that they used. 
And so these are our ancestors, and so this is our true nature. Under a thin veneer of civilization, that was one of their favorite phrases, you know, under a thin veneer of civilization, men really are these brutal beasts at heart. Uh, for example, this is when the, the Tarzan books became popular. So here's a man who's raised by the apes, and so he's still wild, he's still barbarian, savage at heart. And even after he learns European languages and customs, he turns to Jane and says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. And so this seemed to be the message of evolution. And there were more serious literature, too. There was a whole genre called literary naturalism. And the best known is Jack London, uh, who one historian says when he, when he was a young man, he read books about Darwinism and had a conversion experience to radical materialism or naturalism. And so he wrote about dogs, but of course they were metaphors for humans. And he was intending to write fiction to communicate a Darwinian worldview, that humans are just products of natural selection, you know, genes and environment, we have no real free will, and we are, in a sense, you know, just, just beasts under the surface. And so this had an incredible effect in terms of persuading men, well, instead of persuading men to live up to the image of God in them, people began to urge them to live down to their presumed animal nature and that this was really their true nature. Uh, and and you, you might ask, well, how do women put up with such brutal men? And uh, in, in my book I quote Herbert Spencer. He was the most influential popularizer of Darwin here in America. And he, he answers that question. He said, well, to put up with such brutal men, women need to learn the ability to please. And then he added, it would also help if they learned how to hide their resentment at such poor treatment. So this was apparently the message of evolution, that men are brutal beasts at heart and women need to learn to please and placate and hide their true feelings. So you can see why this was a big stage in the <laughs> secular script becoming more toxic. Right. It, it kind of signals a transition from, okay, men are out and they're getting wild and that's a problem to men are out and they're getting wild and that's their true self anyway, because we're all just animals of a different kind. And that's what Darwin has told us. So now it becomes something that we are supposed to accept. And rather than the woman being at home and, hey, you're supposed to be the good ones and we need your help at home to get the men back in line, it's, hey, women, you need to accept this. Is, is that fair to say? Is that the, the nature of this turning point? Absolutely. It is a very important turning point because up until this time, men's behavior was seen as problematic. Right. And, you know, as one historian says, there was little doubt as to the sex of the tavern keepers, the slaveholders, the seducers, and the drunkards. Right. <laughs> In other words, the reform movements of the 19th century, by the way, there were so many of them. It was such an interconnected uh, group of reform movements that historians refer to it as the benevolent empire, benevolent empire. So there were a lot of reform movements, but yes, they were all addressing what were traditionally male vices and putting men on, on the defensive, like, you know, you guys need to shape up. And the, with the rise of Darwinism, men began to say, no, this is our true nature. They began to embrace it. Uh, I'm glad the way you picked up on it because that was th such an important turning point. Instead of feeling, men feeling like, okay, I should accommodate to these higher standards, they said, no, this is my true nature, accept it. Right. So, so fast forward to today, and this has all just continued to snowball in that same direction, really. If you take all of this history together, 
How would you summarize where we've landed today, talking about 2023 as a script for masculinity, and why do we need to worry about that? For the listener who's like, wow, that's some interesting history, but you know, we are here where we are, and why do we need to worry about men? You know, I start the book with a very interesting sociological study. Uh, I'll give you some background, which isn't in the book. <laughs> this has proven to be the most controversial book I've written, which surprised me. <laughs> I, I thought my earlier book, Love Thy Body, would be more controversial because it deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which is really the cutting edge today. I, people are telling me this book is more relevant than when you wrote it. <laughs> but when I, at least in the Christian world, when I started talking about masculinity, um, it, I was giving classes on it, I was get, doing reading groups on it, and they would tell their family and friends, and invariably the first question would be, whose side is she on? <laughs> With that tone, <laughs> whose side is she on? Like, is she, the assumption, you know, either she's a male-bashing feminist, or she's some kind of angry reactionary. And so I put this study right at the beginning of the book because it kind of diffuses that. This sociologist is well enough known that he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this very clever experiment. He asks young men two questions. First, he says, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, someone says he's a good man. What does that mean? Men all around the world had no trouble answering that. Honor, duty, integrity, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy. Be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. I mean, uh, this, this sociologist says, from Brazil to Sweden to Australia, men all knew what it meant to be a good man. And so he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, okay, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, no, 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 no. That's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, suck it up, Win at all costs, um, get rich, get laid. <laughs> that, uh, that's, I'm using their language. <laughs> and so clearly men have two different competing scripts for masculinity in their own head. You know, they're made in God's image and they do know what it means to be the good man. Um, they, it's, an, it's, an eight, uh, it's innate, it's inherent. They know what it means to be a good man. But virtually every culture puts pressure on them to be the real man, which are the traits that we now normally would call toxic. Or certainly if they get separated from the ideal of the good man, you know, the moral image of the good man, it can easily slide into ent entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And I, I suggest that this gives us a, a new way of dealing with these issues because, because men don't respond well to being called toxic. Right? No Surprise. one would. <laughs> but what we can do is we can try to tap into their innate knowledge of what it does mean to be a good man. We can help encourage and support and affirm them in being the good man, which gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. In fact, I'll follow it up with one more study. This was by an anthropologist. It was the first ever study done on concepts of masculinity in different cultures. And he found out that no matter how much, how different they were in how they defined masculinities, you know, some warring cultures might be more aggressive, some peaceful cultures might be less aggressive, but they all shared in common what he called the three Ps, 
the expectation is to be a man, you provide, you protect, and you procreate, by which he meant, you know, you become a, a father, you build into the next generation. And so once again, I thought, there it is. Men know what it means to be a good man. And I think that that's what we should try to do in our treatment of these issues, is can we tap in to that innate knowledge of the good man so that we can approach these issues with a more positive stance. And as much as, you know, we uh, don't as the church and as parents raising the next generation of men recognize that there is this fundamental difference between what society thinks men should be like, what society thinks is bad, and how the Bible paints the picture, if we're not recognizing that, then we're not going to be able to help men live up to their own purpose in life as given to us by the Bible. So I think that's why this subject is so incredibly important. And like I said at the beginning of the show, it, it, this book really opened my eyes to that of just how important it is because of how different today's idea of manhood is versus what it could have been and what it should have been. So I love that. So maybe that's a good place to end by asking you, well, what specifically do you think that the church can do to invest more in developing a biblical idea of manhood? And also for parents, what would you say to parents who have boys at home? What, what can we do? I have one boy. What can we do to raise godly men? who don't follow that secular script and understand what their role really is? Yes, well, that's a, that's a very big question, but let me just start by saying we need to integrate fathers into the lives of their sons better. Um, if, if that was the start of it, the Industrial Revolution took men out of the home. How can we reconnect men with their sons? I, I quote a psychiatrist who said, we're not going to have a better generation of men until we have a better ge generation of fathers who invest in their sons. And looking culture-wide, 40% of American children are growing up without their natural father in the home. And many of them don't even ever see their father. That's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. Can you imagine? That's what we, that's what we are the top of, single parenthood. And we all know that boys growing up without their fathers are much more prone to a whole host of social problems. You know, they're more likely to have problems in school and drop out. They're more likely to have drug and alcohol addiction. They're more likely to have children outside of marriage. They're more likely to commit crime. I used to work for Prison Fellowship, which is an international ministry, and we knew, we knew that some 85% or so of men who, especially violent criminals, mostly grew up in fatherless homes. So the biggest, the biggest long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is reconnecting fathers. So I do have one chapter on, well, we can't undo the Industrial Revolution, but can we flex the workplace at all in ways that allow men to be home more often, to, to work from home part-time, you know, to do telecommuting, to do uh, two days a week at home, to, to start their own business. I, I have some friends who just started their own businesses so that they could have more family time. And I have lots and lots of anecdotes in that chapter. Um, and the pandemic actually had a very mild silver lining in that a lot of men discovered they did like being closer to their families. 65% of fathers in one study said they did not want to go back to the office full time after their children, uh, after the pandemic was over. And the New York Times had a really fun title to one of their articles. It was something like, during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children, and they don't want to lose that. 
Mm. So let me give you a story about one of my own students. She was married to an IT professional, and so during the pandemic, he came home, he worked from home, and because he was home, he was able to do more of the homeschooling. He was. He decided he would be the one to make lunch every day for the family. He was able to drive his kids to soccer and to choir practice. And because he was picking up so many of the family responsibilities, his wife was able to start a part-time business. She was a singer. She was an opera singer. <laughs> and she started a voice studio, and the whole family benefited from the added income. So I interviewed her husband, and he, first he said, I am never going back to a cubicle. <laughs> Our family is so much more, more balanced now. Uh, and then the final kicker was, he said, the time he used to spend commuting, he now spends praying with his wife every morning. So that was a wonderful anecdote on how families can, in fact, work around the Industrial Revolution and see if they can during the, during the years when they're children and young. You know, that's my main concern is connecting fathers to their sons in particular. You know, can can we go ahead and find these flexible situations? And by the way, and we have to help encourage corporations that this actually works. I have several quotes from CEOs in my chapter saying we were afraid to let people work from home because we thought we'd lose productivity. They would slough off. They wouldn't work. He said, during the pandemic, that fear was absolutely exploded. We experienced no loss in productivity. And if anything, sometimes people worked more because they weren't having to waste time commuting and unnecessary meetings and so on. Uh, and so we have to also help corporations realize, I have quotes from a couple of them. I love these quotes. They say, when we give parents time to be better parents, they end up being more productive workers. They do actually work better when their family lives are strong and healthy. And I think this is really important for people to hear because I know some people might think if they haven't read the book, well, we can't go back to colonial times. So what are we supposed to do? You know, we're here, but that's not the the tone of your book at all. And you end with, uh, you know, a couple of chapters that discuss all these possibilities. And I, I think when I got done reading the book, I was like, okay, I want my husband to read this so he can think about how that would impact, you know, the relationship that he has with our son. I want my son to read this so that he can think about what does this mean for my role? And what does this mean for me as a young man, what does this mean for my future? And having kind of a vision of what that would look like to be a husband and a family. And I want my daughter to read it because I want her to think about, well, what kind of man do I want to marry? And what should family life look like? And so there are so many reasons why so many people, I think, should read this book. Like I said, I love it. It's a must-read book. I have had such a good time talking to you about it today and really appreciate you coming on the show. Can you just tell people where to learn more about you and all the books that you have written and get a copy? of course, of the toxic war on masculinity. Yes, well, it's available at Amazon, as everything is, as well as your favorite bookstores, if you prefer christianbook.com. But my publisher just helped me redesign my website. So come and see me, <laughs> nancypiercy.com. <laughs> it's, it's fun and colorful, and you can browse my other books as well and, and see what else, is, what else I've written and with, with descriptions and endorsements, so you get kind of a nice introduction to my, my whole work. So uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I do appreciate it. 
And all of Nancy's books are wonderful. I think I have read all of them except one, and I can say that they're all fabulous. So you should check out all of her work and also follow her on Facebook. She posts a lot of interesting articles there and a lot of interesting discussion threads. So thank you guys for listening today. Don't forget that if you can leave a rating or a review on your local podcast player, it's really helpful to help other people find out about the podcast. And we will talk with you soon. Bye-bye.